Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 7th, 2020. This is episode 2747 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today's episode is called Digital Security for Preppers and Agorists. And I have a friend... Andy Higginbottom. He's actually going to be here helping out with the workshop uh, this this uh, fall. He's done that for us before. Uh, but he also has kind of dug into this whole world of digital security and trying to do it at more of a layman's level so you don't sit here with your eyes glassed over during this interview and go, I don't know what the hell these two people are talking about. Uh, we have a great conversation set up for you today to talk about digital security to talk about cryptography and to talk about why these topics are for you and why there are certain things in this day and age that everybody should be doing. Before we get Andy on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Hey, we're talking about digital security today. But I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in digital security, we don't realize that digital security and physical world security now overlap with each other. Uh, you're... Uh, credit cards have little RFID cards in them, and those things are actually fairly easy to steal, but not if they are uh, sandwiched between the titanium walls of a Ridge Wallet. It makes them fairly impenetrable at that point. It also looks really cool, and it helps you live a minimalist lifestyle. I've been carrying the Ridge Wallet now. Uh, this December will be three years of carrying the Ridge Wallet. I have not once felt the need to reach back and pick up my billfold. In fact, I probably need to throw it away. I've just kind of Hung on to In fact, it's sitting here on my desk. I've kind of hung on to it out of nostalgia. But I don't miss that big lump on my butt, and I don't miss the lack of security that it provided me. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Remember, they do do a discount for member support brigade uh, members as well. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Easiest company I've ever been asked to endorse in my life. I was a reader of Outdoor, uh, I'm sorry, Backwoods uh, Home Magazine for almost 20 years before I started TSP. So when they came and said, hey, we want to sponsor the show, it was like, well, okay, sure. I mean, it was really easy to say yes to. If you check them out and start reading their content, you'll see why. Learn more at BackwoodsHome.com. And before I bring our guest, Andy, on, let's, let's talk about our quote of the day today. Uh, this is by one of America's founders, Thomas Paine. And since we're going to be talking about security and we're going to talk about people we can't trust... I uh, thought that we would look at at least one half of that that group of uh, of people that we shouldn't trust. We got private and public, and public is the government. This is what Thomas Paine said long before there was an internet or such thing as digital privacy about government. Government, even its best state, is but a necessary evil, and in its worst state, an intolerable one. Does that sound like a man that trusted the state to you? Uh, I don't think so. The people that founded our government didn't trust the government that they founded. Not because they didn't trust the people that were alongside them, because they didn't trust the entity that was government itself. Knowing that the people that are within a government will always change and the power within a government will always grow. And that's a good reason to be thinking about how much data really you should allow to be available out there about you and your life and what you do. Even if you trust the government of today, it's no guarantee that you can't trust the government of tomorrow. And as you'll hear today when I talk to Andy, there, there's also the other group we can't really trust in this, is the corporatocracy. 
Now, the technocracy is the corporatocracy, the oligarchy, and the government all blend into one giant fascist overlord. And they all talk to each other and provide information for each other. How about the world that we're going to get to? I don't, and we'll talk about this today with Andy once he's on. This is not one of those things where I'm like 90%. I'm telling you 100% this is going to happen. We're going to get into a world where private industries are acting like bounty hunters for government even before they're solicited to do so. In other words, they will develop technologies that will allow them to identify certain groups of people and then go to the government and say, we can tell you where 50,000 of these people are, what they're doing and how they did it if you'll give us money. If you don't think that's going to happen, then you don't understand what Thomas Paine was talking about when he said, government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. And with that, hey, Andy, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Cool. Hey, man, we got you on today to talk about digital security, cryptography, uh, things that seem really high level to people, but they don't have to be. And something that more people should be more concerned about than they are. So I want to dig into that deep with you today. But before we do that, can you just tell people, you know, who is Andy, man? Like, how did you get to where you are in life today? Take us back to, like, spacing out in high school or something. And, you know, what was your kind of professional path? And, and what do you do today? And how would you get there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I actually uh, I was homeschooled all the way through K through 12. Um, so I never had that, uh, sitting in study hall, picking your nose, wondering <laughs> what to do with your life. Uh, wonderful experience, I guess. I missed out on that. Um, went from homeschooling, uh, on to college, went from college to where I am now, uh, professionally, which is I work kind of on the blue solid, blue collar side of corporate America and, um, been there for several years. Actually, you'll be you know, excited to hear. I just recently kind of went through a seminar that was sort of like a, your ass kickings all, rolled into a whole weekend long um that really inspired me to say like by the end of the end of the year or by a year from now i'm going to be um doing something that i'm really passionate about to earn an income so i'm kind of hoping to move that way but i don't work uh in anything related to cryptography or security or computers um i turn wrenches for a living and that's kind of i think my uh my unique insight here is i got in probably about 2016 i started thinking about privacy and security and got really interested in it and I went down a rabbit hole there, and I found that there was not a lot of what I'd say layperson-friendly information out there. There's a lot of uh, a lot of really good technical stuff. Well, not even a lot of that, but there is some really good technical stuff if you are a programmer. I assume yeah. that would make sense to you. Um, uh, that didn't make sense to me. Like I remember being stuck thinking, like, what is this encryption stuff? Like, what do they mean by zero knowledge? What's the difference? And I had to work pretty hard to understand all that. Um, and I got to where I feel like I do, you know, at least at the level that I can use it in my own life. And I thought, man, if this is this hard for me, it's probably this hard for everybody. So I've tried to, since then, I've done a few trainings for uh, different groups I'm involved with. I've tried to kind of just spread the word among my friends and family of how this stuff works and why I think it's important. And so that's where I'm at today. Cool. So to me, that makes a lot of sense because... Some of these technical instructionals that tell you how to do things, you're like, if I understood what the hell you were talking about, I wouldn't be looking up how to do it. It reminds me of like when you know, I was, like, <laughs> exactly. I was like, you know, a teenager and I was just learning my way around a new place, and you'd be like, hey, how do I find the you know whatever store? And the guy'd be like, well, do you know where you know such and such is? It's right across the street from that. 
Listen, dumbass, if I knew where that was, I'd know where the other thing was. And I, So when you start reading some of these things, that's exactly how it feels. It's like, so, you know, adjust this to that or whatever. And you're like, if I knew anything about any of this, I wouldn't need you to tell me to do it. And uh, so, yeah, I think there is a uh, an information hurdle there. So let's just start off with uh, with digital security in the beginning. What? What makes digital security so important to the person that's probably never even really thought about it? So I think um, the reason that this is important to everybody, uh, whether you've thought about it or not, is our world is more and more digital. If you took me back to 1980 and you said, hey, do you think it's really important that everybody have uh, you know, great digital security hygiene? I'd say probably not. Hmm. If you fast forward me to 2050, I really hope, if people ask that question and everyone kind of looks at them like, well, duh, of course it's important. Uh, you know, just like, you know, you want to make sure that your tires aren't completely bald on your car. Of course, it's that simple and straightforward. So in 2020, we're in between that. Um, that's kind of where I think we got to, if we want to be on the leading edge of things, we really need to understand the world is more and more digital and we're going to have to adapt to that. And the thing with uh, threats in the digital world, you know, you can kind of look around you outside your house and see, do I live in a dangerous neighborhood? Am I likely to have, you know, somebody kicking in my door and trying to steal from me in the night? You can, we all sort of know how to assess that. We don't have those uh, resources built up yet uh, for digital threats, and they are, they can be a lot more um, hidden under the surface, right? You can have a slick-looking app you install on your phone that does all kinds of stuff and the, behind the scenes and then is stealing your bank account and, you know, sending porno pictures to your friends and stuff like that. And that's just really foreign to a lot of us who haven't experienced that. So can you talk about two words that are used interchangeably that I really don't think should be security and privacy? What's the difference yeah, between security and privacy in the digital world? Absolutely. I'm a hundred percent with you there that those are not the same thing. Um, it is interesting. That was one of the questions when I first started thinking about this, and I actually I started a blog about it, and I said, well, what is the difference? Like, security, I think we can easily define. That's protection from threats. Um, you know, in the physical world, right, we're talking about locks, we're talking about uh, bars on your windows, we're talking about carrying a firearm, stuff like that. Uh, in the digital world, we're talking about having things password protected, um, having them encrypted, using uh, updated software so there aren't uh, vulnerabilities to malware. That one, I think, is pretty straightforward. But I don't know if you've ever sat down and tried to define what is privacy. It's kind of tricky. Um, and so it's easy to think, you know, like, I don't want people to see me, see me naked. That's <laughs> privacy. But, uh, well, what, what does that mean? Like, what happens if someone happens to see me changing through my window? Like, have I been hurt? Does something bad happen? nothing bad happens, is that bad? Is this a problem for me to think about it? So what I came up with in my mind is security is um, concerned with current threats. So digital security, there are hackers out there that would like to steal your uh, bank information. There are people that want to steal your cryptocurrency. Uh, you could get doxxed, that sort of thing. Privacy is um, dealing with future threats, right? So if I give complete and total knowledge of myself to someone else, that's giving them a lot of trust, right? And so if I do that with absolutely everybody in the world on the Internet and you can find out anything about me, maybe that won't hurt me today, but maybe the world will be a little different or my life will be different a year from now, and that could be dangerous. Yeah, and I think there's 
there's it's kind of probably important to think about the fact that there is maybe maybe three levels of threat or threat levels three different main groups of people that I consider a threat. The first one is the obvious one that everybody thinks about. The person that wants to steal your credit card information, uh, use uh, your data to set up a line of credit, uh, the things that we normally think of, hacking in, in, in your desktop, get on your Jack's wallet and send all your cryptocurrency to themselves. The people that want to steal from you, and that's the number one thing that we think of. They want to steal from you in like the digital world. Then you have the whole aspect of someone that maybe wants to ruin your life because you spit on them in high school or something. You, you you forgot about it. You'd apologize if you knew to, but you don't remember it, and who knows why. But somebody that wants to actually hurt you in real life, that can cyberstalk you and use that to specifically target you. Because if I want to steal your bank account information, I don't want Andy's bank account information. I want 10,000 bank accounts worth of information. I can hit all at once and be gone with it. It really doesn't... You know, unless Andy has a lot of money and I know it, and I'm specifically targeting him, an individual is not what I'm after. I'm really more after that database at Chase Bank. And then there's the third one, and it's the one that people are just finally waking up to. And it's I'm going to call it the, the, the fascist oligarchy because it's the government and the corporations that want your data. They don't necessarily want to steal from you, but they want to track you, control you, manipulate you. And I think people are just waking up to, hey, there's these three, and there might be more, but in my mind, those three classes of threat. And then each has its own level of sophistication and layer and, and, and you know how severe it is. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And actually, um, I haven't quite come up with the term that I think makes the most sense yet, yeah. but that third threat you were talking about of the fascist oligarchy sort of thing um, – I don't think that's even really a question that fits under the word privacy. I think in that sense, we're moving into a world where privacy as we knew it is basically dead. And we have to, as a as a human race, come up with um, new ways to think about this and new standards to be able to understand that. I just read a really good book um, on that topic called Surveillance Capitalism. Um, it comes from a little bit different uh, sort of philosophical and statist government sort of view than uh, you or I might, but super helpful. And she makes the case that, uh, that, you know, I'm sure you've heard this statement and probably I've said the statement um, that we are the product if we're not the customer for services like Facebook and Google or whatever. Uh, she puts it as human beings are actually the raw material. The product that those companies are making is predictions um, on how their raw material, the people will behave and the customer is advertisers. And I found that super helpful in thinking about um, that third state of it's not even that they're invading your privacy. It's that they want to know everything about you so they can predict and or control your every move. Well, and here's like an example. And this is from a mainstream media outlet from years ago. Uh, if there's a show that comes out that's like future predictions, I watch it. I don't remember what this was called, but it was a series. And it was like a learning channel or something like that. And they were talking about, you know, what the future in, let's say, 2070 or something around there might be like. And they were talking about how, you know, they might actually have the medical capability to do something like print a new organ for an organ transplant, which would be amazing. But with the scenario they'd come up with, and I don't remember what the behavior was, but there was a guy who did a certain behavior that he had agreed not to do for his insurance rates. And it turned out that he did that behavior, whatever it was. And... 
somehow through all the tracking and technology, the insurance company found out that he did. So even though he needed this organ that we now had the ability to, to print, so they were going way out there with predictions, but, well, that's fine. You can get one, but it's on you. We're not paying for it because we made this deal that you wouldn't do, you know, let's say smoke. It wasn't smoking, but something like that. You wouldn't smoke, but now we know you smoked because of digital tracking. And whether someone thinks that specific thing is valid or not, it doesn't change things like if I can track you, I know where you go, when you go, and what's there. So I know certain behaviors that you're engaged in. And then what can that mean, not only from government, but from the corporatocracy? That's why I say it's kind of like the fascist oligarchy, right? It's, a, it's this whole conglomeration of government and private industry collaborating together and what they can know about you. Like, if you drink, if you happen to swing by the liquor store every night, right, and, I, and you have your phone with you, well, I know that's where you went. You, you could also be stopping at the mail place next to the liquor store every night, and that could be a mis- Assignment. There's so many things going forward like that where they have like these digital dossiers that you could never like. I couldn't sit down and, and and compile this on you if I had the patience to do it. But with computer algorithms, I can. I can make that mass prediction. But anytime like an auditor of your insurance policy again is determining whether to make a payment on you, hey, let's just see if the you know the magical gigawatt you know quantum computer that you know IBC insurance has now can recognize any pattern that might help me avoid paying you because gee that's my job is to avoid paying you I mean that's what insurance insurance employees generally do is try to not make a, pl- a payment that's just one example right yeah absolutely um, and I think if you look back even to 2013 um, when Edward Snowden came out and, and exposed all the information that was getting funneled to the government and I think people kind of looked at that and they were like, well, nothing bad's happening. Like <laughs> our government, you know, haven't, they haven't turned into Nazis, so it must be okay. But the thing that, that strikes me from that is right now we are developing and implementing the actual data gathering capabilities. And in 2013, the government and nobody had the, the computational power to actually do everything that could be done with the amount of data that they are accumulating. So what they do? They built a giant data center. They filled it up with hard drives, and they kept sticking stuff on there, right? And and they kept they being you know the whole world keeps developing um, better computers, and so someday we will have artificial intelligences that can sort through that. We will have you know computers that are a thousand times faster than they are today, and they will be able to use all that information and make those predictions. And I think the the one side that I'm not on thinks that the world will be a better better place when it's managed by these uh, computers and the people who own them. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about basically technocracy there, and that is definitely in our future. And there's individual ways that that can be used, but there's also collectivist ways. So if you look at, for instance, an election in the United States for president, it's about 2 or 3% of the people that vote decide the election. I don't care what the popular vote says. It doesn't matter. There is a very small number of people who will vote for, let's say, a George Bush one election, a Barack Obama next election, and a, and a Donald Trump the following. Like, you're not following principles if you're doing that. You're not independent because you're, 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 you're making switches that are so vastly different 
And you're going back and forth. And those people decide every election in a few states. If I can use this type of predictive algorithm to know what the what that group's sum of all fears is this time around, with simple messaging through media, I can completely influence that election. I don't think we're there yet, but we're damn close. We're damn close. And all the people can post all the pictures they want of Biden sniffing people or Trump flipping out that they want. It, it, it won't impact that middle group of people. And that's just one example because we can do, if you look at the manipulation being done with coronavirus, for instance, the more data you have, the more you know how to fine tune that message, not to help people, but to get them to do what you want them to do. So we have both an individual threat, maybe like a subgroup niche threat, and we have a mass threat all at once. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, are you familiar with the experiment that Facebook ran to show that they were capable of influencing elections? No. They So that was, I want to say 2014. It's been like multiple years ago. Facebook did an actual experiment. I mean, like they got data science and data scientists who know how to run, you know, double blind type studies and stuff. They brought them in and they ran an experiment um, within Facebook where they basically looked at um, that I just voted sticker that they put on Facebook. They looked at if they show that and if they show positive or negative uh, messages from your friends on the day of the election, if that would influence voter turnout. So, you know, Jack sees a uh, I voted sticker from 50 people and, oh, I'm so proud that I voted messages from all his friends. Andy doesn't see any of that. Uh, Jack is several percent more likely to go vote than Andy is. And they did that. They they ran the data, you know, that it was a legitimate experiment, which, by the way, no uh, university or other uh, official sort of people who we look to for studies would ever have done this because it would have been considered unethical. Mm -hmm. But they did this and they showed that they can influence voter turnout by a couple percent. So it's not real hard to extrapolate that if they wanted to influence one party up and one party down, they could probably do that. Well, especially when they have every piece of demographic data necessary so that they could say, here's the two states that we need to influence, here's the people that we need to influence to vote, and the people that we need to kind of dissuade from voting. Like, that's what I'm talking about, yep, this map, moving the mass with a small middle. And that's, that's going on. Um, how does this particularly pertain to people that fancy themselves as anarchists, agorists, libertarians, etc. Yeah, so I have kind of a philosophical point to make to that and then also a practical side. Um, on the philosophical side, I would say if you consider yourself in any of those categories, probably you would say that human beings have the right and the responsibility and the capability to choose for themselves, to manage their own lives, to not be controlled by other people. Um, and if you compare that over against someone that would be more statist, they're probably going to say that at least in some areas, tending to all areas, depending on their brand of statism, um, you, we do need managed, right? We people, we can't be trusted to manage our own uh, retirement, or we can't be trusted to manage our own health care, or we can't be trusted to have guns, or whatever it is, we need somebody else to manage that for us. And so when I look at um, technology right now as it's developing the technocrats that run these companies, um, Facebook, Google, etc., I think they absolutely are of the view that people can't be trusted to manage themselves, right? We can't count on you to keep track of your own 
password and be totally in control of your own data, we'll just we'll keep an extra copy of the keys just in case. And no, we won't let you opt out of that because you might make a stupid choice. And so I would say philosophically, just like if you consider yourself in that agorist, anarchist, libertarian corner of the world, like we of all people should be looking at ways that we can uh, manage our own lives and not count on Google to do that for us or the government to do that for us or whoever else is uh, making and selling the software that kind of watches over us. And then practically, um, obviously, right now, the government is not uh, actively tapping into these things to manage people's daily lives, but uh, there's no reason to believe it will always be that way. And so if you're going to be kind of operating in gray markets or doing things like that, um, it probably is a really good idea for you to be using a zero-knowledge encrypted service where you have the most confidence possible that the government's not reading your mail. Well, and I would add to it, the good news about agorism is it works. The bad news is that it works. And what I mean by that is there's an old saying that you know when you're over the target, it's when you're getting shot at. Government ignores us mostly in name. They don't talk about agorism. They don't specifically say these guys are dangerous. But if you look through history, the agorist is the primary target of law enforcement. During Prohibition, the, the primary target was people who were making whiskey and gin in their bathtub or whatever, right? You know, they took down Al Capone and they did it with the uh, IRS, but... But what they were attacking was agorism. There's, there is just this in, incredible history of this, and that's why if you've ever sat and looked at something like ATF, right, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, you're like, what the hell? <laughs> do those three things have to do with each other? Why would we have a bureau that's in, enforcing gun laws along with a bureau that's enforcing Tax regulation of cigarettes. That that on its face, from a you know from anybody with just a basic logical assessment, it's like th th those two things are not related. That, that's that's you know it might as well be lipstick and junk food you know, bureau or something. But historically, alcohol, tobacco, and guns are primary barter items and primary items on black and gray markets. And so when you look at agorism, it is a target. It is a target due to taxes, which agorists generally don't pay, and it's a target due to the fact that it works. So if you're engaged in behaviors that right now you think of as being, you know, very light gray market behaviors, you're not running a still like that TV show or something out in the backwoods or whatever, but you're engaged in some of these behaviors, most of us are left alone with that because we're not worth it. But when you use technology as a leverage principle, a lot of things that didn't used to be worth it, we call it in like marketing the long tail terms as an example, become easy layups. Hey, we can just pick these people up. We can just find these people. We can send these people letters, say they owe us five grand, what have you. And corporations eventually will get into basically the digital, I think they'll get into what you call digital bounty hunting. Hey, we have a whole list of people that owe you guys a shitload of tax money. You want it? We want a piece of it. We'll even collect it for you. I see things like that happening. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's what I see coming as well. Um, technology has made 
uh, individuals and companies dramatically more effective than they were. Uh, government is a lot slower than, you know, basically everything else to adapt to changes. But someday government is also going to be substantially more efficient than they have been in the, fa- in the past. And that's probably not good for most of us, even if you're not an agorist. Uh, the other thing I think that applies with this is kind of a, a third point to that is the purpose of all this surveillance that these companies do is to sell advertising. And the best way to sell advertising is to know for sure what someone's going to do. And the best way to do that is to manipulate them into doing it. And I think we see that as, you know, companies like Coca-Cola that spend millions and millions or whatever, huge amounts of money on advertising, they're not trying to tell people they exist, right? They're trying to feed into that urge to get you to go drink a sugary soda because there's probably not but a handful of people on the planet that don't know that you can buy Coca-Cola soda. Like, that's not what advertising is about to them anymore. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I also think there's probably about half the audience just eye-rolled themselves into another dimension when you said government would become more efficient. I think we need to back up to that a second <laughs> and explain what that means, because I agree. I don't think that means that your Congress will be more efficient. I don't think that means that your your president's cabinet will be more efficient. I don't think you meant it that way. But when you build a technology that does the work of finding people that uh, owe tax money, people don't have to be more efficient now. The technology ends up doing the job of the government enforcer. And then the enforcer only need take the people that didn't comply with the request, give us thy money, and go get them and put them in a cage until they come up with the money. Further, we are headed toward a digital national currency. This is going to happen. This is being built. Every time people come out with information on it, they're like, oh, it's all tin hat conspiracies. Like, no, no, this is stuff being said by, like, Federal Reserve banks and, and things like that. And I believe the way that they're going to do this will be some form of UBI. And people are like, well, I don't know if we'll ever get to UBI. We already had it. We already had a UBI this year. They called it a, you know, a stimulus. But everybody got money sent to them. Right? That, that's, it was universal basic income. You only got one check, but everybody got it. The play that's being made now by the Fed is, in the future, government is, and here's your word, inefficient at getting money to people. We need a way to digitally simply give people money. Now, if you want to get people using cryptocurrency, the coin drop people showed us this long ago, you give it to them. Now, if somebody gave you cryptocurrency that was U.S. dollars, and, and what they also said, the most recent data that came out was the way they want to do it is they'll give you the money. So Andy gets a 1,000 U.S. space credits. But if you don't spend it in 30 days, I'll take it back because you didn't need it. Now think about that. There's no reason for that because if I give you a thousand bucks, almost everybody spends more than that a month anyway. The only way I know if you spent the money, the specific money I gave you or not, is to tokenize it in some way. So now if we get you to a point where all your money ends up being in some sort of digital form, which most, like 97% of it is already, but it's all in all these different banks, it's all in different databases, etc. But if we If we tokenize that money, even though now it's with Bank of America or Chase or whatever, and and the computer says, you know what? Andy was engaged in this activity of teaching people how to use cryptography and charging in Bitcoin. 
and we have decided that he owes us $10,000. Pachink, your money's gone. And every dime you get up until I get my ten grand is gone. And I think that's another one of the roadmaps that they have laid out, and it might be a good idea for you to get into a situation where you know, you're able to keep that money in U.S. dollars only as much as you need for what you need it for and move it to places where it is untouchable. I mean, there's so much going on here that I don't think people understand. Yeah, I absolutely agree um, with with everything you just said about the digital currency. Um, and yeah, when you think about it, you know, didn't was there some politician that promised some time ago that at some point we'd be able to do our taxes on a postcard? Am I misremembering that? No. Nope. Or does that seem like something that somebody would use to sell this to say, hey, thanks to this system? Um, you know, now all you have to do is basically click accept on this thing that pops <laughs> up on your smartphone once a year and your taxes are done. And I, I don't know, that seems that seems believable to me somehow that that would be used to sell. Especially to the individual. Because corporations yeah, no, and even, even people like me, we're still going to have CPAs. Because we're not doing taxes against income. We're doing taxes against profit. And those are totally different things. So you can take away all kinds of deductions and loopholes and whatever. I still have a cost of goods sold that has to be calculated and done. But if you go work for somebody and you get paid weekly or biweekly or monthly or however, none of that's true. And your tax is fixed against your income and your investments and all that stuff. And that's actually really easy to figure out if you digitize everything. And that means that, again, you're back to complete and total control. Absolutely. So maybe y'all need cryptography, cryptocurrency, digital privacy, and a dead-gone business, like I've been saying, too. Let's talk about different levels of privacy, though, online. Some real basic stuff for people. Yeah, so kind of the way that I like to, to teach about this is I think about having what I call personal profile and forensic privacy. Um And so we'll start with uh, forensic privacy, even though that's the last one, because I think that's where people's minds go to. And I would define that as doing something that it's impossible for anybody to ever know you did, right? So I think you've given examples before buying a jar of jam from your neighbor using cash, right? I can walk over to my next-door neighbor, hand them some dollar bills, they hand me a jar of jam. Um, we'll do it outside, far away from any Alexas or whatever. We'll leave our phones in the house. Uh, we'll do it under a tree so they can't see what happens from aerial view. I'd say that's forensically private, right? It is basically impossible for anybody to ever prove that that transaction happened. Uh, when we start getting on the Internet, that becomes almost impossible to achieve. I wouldn't say impossible, and especially if we think of it from specific services, like could Amazon figure out that, you know, this order that I made under a pseudonym with a, a fake card number, or not fake, but a... a Uh, one-time use card number and a special email like can i do all that and hide this from amazon probably maybe um can i hide it from the nsa if they decide that i'm a terrorist and they need to get rid of me probably not but i think that's where people sort of gravitate to when you start talking about privacy they're like oh i'm gonna become the gray man i'll never be seen i'll never be known so that is a category but i think it's almost a almost a null category on the large scale and you have to kind of think hard about whether you're willing to do it with a company such as Amazon or your internet provider or whatever. And then for the other two, um, personal privacy, 
I would define that as basically um, kind of protecting yourself from doxing or other sort of real-world attacks from individuals. So an example of that might be using a pseudonym on a social media network. That's not going to hide you from the social media company. They're still going to be able to probably figure out who you are. And even if they don't know your real name, they can still um, advertise to you, influence you, whatever it is that they want to do. But if I go on Facebook and I look for Jack Spearco and Jack Spearco is not there because you're operating as, you know, uh, Bob Smith, then, right, you're Joe Blow on Facebook. I don't know that. You know, could could somebody who worked really figure out that Joe Blow is really Jack? Probably. But if I listen to your show and I get super pissed, and I'm like, I'm going to go egg that guy's mailbox, um, and I just jump on Facebook to try to find you, and you're not there as Jack Spearco, that's going to make it a lot harder for me to find it. Um, and then more serious uh, stuff, like you can do things, uh, property ownership records are all uh, public public knowledge, right? You can go down to your county courthouse and figure out who owns what property. Um, it makes a lot of sense if, say, you're in uh, real estate and you own a lot of property to use things like trusts and other uh, entities to sort of disguise that a little bit. So I don't just pull up your name in your local county database and go, wow, this guy owns $5 million worth of property. He'd be a great person to sue. Um, and then the profile privacy I talked about, that is, in my mind, a specific entity, usually a service that we de- deal with not having a ton of details about you. Um, and that basically, just, that's where you kind of can um, thwart these technocratic companies in their attempt to influence you. Um, like, I was pretty proud. I went through and cleaned out Facebook. As I do, I still have a Facebook account. But I went through and kind of cleaned it out a while back, as I do sometimes, and I found that they were predicting that I liked all these things that I really don't like, and I was pretty proud of that. Um, an example of this would be, like, I use a a false name on my Amazon account. So uh, does that mean Amazon could never figure out who I am? Probably not, but I can just cycle a new Amazon account every couple years under a name that's not quite the same as mine, and maybe that will help keep them from building up quite as big a stash of data or being quite as confident about what it is that I do, and it costs me nothing to do that. Well, yeah, and I think what you're talking about there, really there's there's two levels in this. Does somebody want to find you, or does somebody want to research you, or is somebody just researching everybody and you're part of a group? So if someone, from, like you said, the government, NSA, CIA, FBI, decides, hey, we're going to dig into Andy Higginbottom's shit, most of the stuff you just said will only moderately work. And actually, when one piece of it's found, it becomes maybe even a a signal that, hey, there's more here. However, the average company, the average person, whatever, this now is enough misdirection. So the question is, how much misdirection do you use and in what way? Because I I know you know enough about this this by talking to you now that I know you're like me when you're watching like a, a crime TV show and they're like, we can't find where he is because he bounced it through three proxies and blah, shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. I'm glad you have that little encyclopedia of buzzwords to put in your script, but no, that's not how that works. Um, But we don't need to make it easy. And and so different levels of misdirection are are, are quite useful uh, in many ways. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And that's kind of what I'm going with with the personal and profile. In my mind, we're not going to hide from the NSA if they want to find us. We're not going to hide from, um, you know, if Facebook wants to find us, they can figure out stuff about us. 
But if we think about things that will sort of protect us from other people finding us easily, and then the profile privacy being more about um, sort of just thwarting the general way that these companies work where they suck up data about you all the time. And I will say there are some really simple things you can do that would make it difficult for even a Facebook to know exactly who you are. If you're running the Brave browser through Tor with a fake name on Facebook, I mean, I guess if they track that individual account long enough, sooner or later they might be able to figure it out, but it's it, it would be a very difficult situation at that point for you to be unmasked. And that's not anything complicated at all. Though it's getting harder and harder to set up a fake Facebook account. I mean, you know, a lot of times now you need a number. Well, you can do that with Google Voice. Well, that number has to go somewhere so that the number can be answered through a text. You know, like, you know see what I'm saying? Like, right. one way or another, there's a place, but um, the longer ago it happened, the harder it is to track back through all of that crap. So the sooner you might want to set up your alternate things might be yesterday or the day before today, if that makes sense, too. Because yep. if somebody's looking to do this tomorrow and you did it today, that's one thing. If they're looking to do it in 2025 and you did it today, that's another. It's another because that initial setup, like there is a finite level of like data that's seen as worth keeping. Though I think that's beginning. It's getting so cheap to store data. I, I think we're going to get to a point where there might not be a single keystroke that's not stored somewhere. Yeah, definitely. So, and the the other advantage you have to this at this particular moment is most people aren't trying to hide from the system. Mm. So, you know, that setup you mentioned with Brave Browser and Tor and everything, Yeah, I am guessing if Facebook dedicated their resources to saying no one will ever hide from us in this way, <laughs> they could probably figure out a way to make sure that wouldn't happen. Yeah. But since no one is trying to hide from them that way, if you do it, it will probably work. And well, so it's, I think it's that's, like you it's said. Like, it, say, if you, it's not even nobody. It's such a small fraction, right, Because what they're concerned with is the is is the the majority. That's that's what they're concerned with more control over. Right. Yeah. If you're in the point zero 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 one percent of weirdos, they don't care enough to spend the money to figure it out at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about cryptography and encryption and what those words and concepts should mean to our audience. All right. So these are kind of in my mind the heart of having privacy and security on the Internet. Um, we are moving towards them being more and more common, and I think the average person, including me a few years ago, just, just doesn't understand them. So cryptography is applied math. Um, it's basically, in the sense of digital things, complex equations and algorithms to um, transform data from its you know written state that you created in into meaningless gobbledygook in a more or less uh, quality way. And so I'll give a really simple example to help uh, people understand that. If you and I wanted to mail each other numbers back and forth in the mail, mm -hmm. we could come up with a simple uh, cryptographic scheme where we're going to multiply whatever number by 10. And so if I want to send you a letter that says 12, I would multiply 12 times 10. I get 120. I write that on a paper. I mail it to you. You get the paper. You'd say 120 divided by 10 you're back to 12, and you got back to the original uh, message. That is a form of encryption. It's very simple, and it's very easy, but it is encryption. And really, when you encrypt something, 
uh, on your computer, that's all you're doing, except the equation is way, 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 way more complicated than multiply times 10. And so uh, cryptography has become, and encryption has become very common, and I think this is where people get a little bit hung up, because uh, I've just noticed since I started doing this about four years ago, you know, back then, nobody mentioned encryption. And not that long before that, it wasn't around. Like, emails used to be sent completely unencrypted. So they were like, I've heard it compared to a postcard. And so it would bounce through different service providers' hubs. And any service provider that wanted to along the way could just read that because it was just plain text. Um, and they didn't change that until, like, I don't know, 2009 or 10 or something. Like, not that long ago, long after email was around. But today, most things are encrypted in some form or another, and we'll get into that in a second of the different types. But, um, you know, your email is encrypted, but it's encrypted by the provider. And so it's all around us. It's understanding, does this benefit me, or does this benefit, uh, or they all benefit you, but does it benefit just me, or is it also benefiting um, the service provider at my cost? So basically, if you think of encryption as a form of digital locks and... Um, sort of a lock box, then the different types of encryption that matter to us depend on where your information is put into the box and who has the key. So our encryption here we're imagining as a, uh, a safe deposit type box, and you put your information in it, and somebody else locks the key the box, and then they carry it somewhere and hand it to the recipient, and they unlock it for them. That entity controls your keys all the time. And so they are going to be, you know, if they want to stop along the way and pull it out and read it or alter it or do whatever they want, they have that control. If you control the keys and the the company that's transporting it for you is just picking up the box, carrying it, and setting it down, then it's not impossible for them to alter it, but it becomes far more costly, right? Now they have to get a safe cracker, they have to cut through it, they maybe have to have a second box, etc., etc., um, to put it in physical terms. And so, does that all kind of make sense? No, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think yeah, that... So the, go ahead. I was just going to say, so the, the terms that, like, and this is kind of the money part of this encryption thing, I want everybody to know. So the terms that are really important to understand are encryption, end-to-end -end encryption, and zero knowledge. And so encryption just means we're using locks and we're using lock boxes. And that's, like, Gmail uses solid, good, high-quality encryption. Um, everybody does, but they have the keys and they control it. End-to-end -end encryption is the next step up, and that means we're locking it up on your machine, and it never leaves your machine in an unencrypted state, and it never is unencrypted till it reaches the recipient's machine. Um, and that's good. That's that's a great thing. But again, who has the keys? Zero knowledge means only you, the person who generated the encryption keys, have those keys, and so. No one, unless they're brute force cracking it, no one but you can decrypt that. Or the person whose key, you know, if you're using a email or whatever, there's keys on both ends. But that zero knowledge means that um, the provider cannot access what you are encrypting without uh, you giving them the keys. And so that's super uh, important because a lot of companies would say they're encrypted or even that they're end-to-end -end encrypted, but they still have the keys. Well, and so analogizing that to something that's low-tech, old-school, it would be probably like one of the toughest codes to ever crack that you could use with, let's say, handwritten codes, which would be book code. So book code 
for those that aren't familiar with the concept, would be that Andy and I want to send each other letters back and forth, and if it gets stopped in the mail, we don't want anybody to have any idea what it is. And so we'll have, we, if we do this right, we have maybe a couple dozen books on both sides. And there's some way of letting him know which book needs to be used for this particular code. And if the first number was something like uh, 12-132, that word would be the 12th word on page 132 of that book. Now, what makes this so ironclad, and I would say almost ironclad, is that Andy and I have to have not just the same book, but the exact same book. So like when you used to, when you know Barnes and Nobles used to be a thing and you'd go in and they'd have like the collected tales of Edgar Allan Poe sitting up for five bucks. That would be a great book. Because if you had the collective uh, prose and tales of Edgar Allan Poe from any other printing, it won't work. It has to be the exact same edition of that book and that exact same printing run because if you get, you know, the leather-bound pretty one that's uh, 12 years older, It has a different number of pages, different word count, different layout. So when you have that end-to-end encryption, the most analogous thing I can think of to explain it is like having that book code. You have to have the book on both ends, but it has to be the right book on both ends, and you have to know what the book is on both ends. And that makes it extremely difficult to crack, and I'd say about the only thing harder to crack than good end-to-end encryption that, 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 that is, you know... Um, completely unknown to anybody except the other side of it would be book code. Like, and that's probably actually, that'd probably be the hardest code I've ever looked at to ever be able to crack because otherwise it's these random numbers. And the other thing that you do with book code is, so when I'd send that, you know, uh, 31, 125, I cross that word out of my book and that one is never used again. And so it would be almost impossible to crack that. And I think some of our EDE stuff kind of works that way in, in a much more sophisticated way. Yes, I, I think you're right. Again, I'm not a cryptographer, so I can't uh, speak to exactly how they do it. But And to take that analogy just a step further, so if you and I are communicating through that method, we could consider that zero-knowledge uh, encryption. Only I know the books and only you know, you know, only you and I know the books, yep. and so nobody else has those keys. So let's say my wife wants to send your wife a message using this method, and so my wife comes to me and asks me to encrypt it, and I send it to you, and you decrypt it and hand it to your wife, they are now using um, not zero knowledge, but still end-to-end encrypted, right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't leave our We're houses the unencrypted. Right. But And so they they are trusting you and I to not mess that up, right? And, of yep. course, you know, with our spouses, that would be reasonable. But if we just, for whatever reason, wanted to ruin that relationship, we could put something in there that wasn't in there. We'd know, right? That would be a really crappy way for them to talk about birthday presents for us, right? Because it's not zero knowledge, even though it's still end-to-end. And then a step further, if my neighbor um, wants to use that, and so he just writes a message, and he puts it in my mailbox, and I get it out of my mailbox, encrypt it, send it to you, or send it, and you decrypt it and pass it off to your neighbor the same way, now we're completely not end-to-end, right? Somebody could just pull the plain text out of the mailbox. And so that's what... Uh, you know, when it's getting encrypted off of your machine, you're getting into that realm. What are the basics we can use to evaluate services and think, like, this is or isn't something I should be using? 
Yeah, um, so you had a guy on a couple weeks ago um, who talked about open source software, and that is one of the really great um, things that we can use to check things out and understand is open source code. And I thought that was a great episode and encourage anybody that hasn't heard it to listen to it, but I didn't feel like he really dug into what open source code means. And so the way uh, computer programs work is they are written as source code, which is sort of like a recipe, and then it's called compiled. They're compiled into the um, executable code, which is what actually runs on your computer. And so if you look at the source code, a, a coder can actually figure out what it does. They're familiar with that language and everything. Once it's been compiled, you don't have that visibility into it anymore. So if something is open source, that's basically like a recipe, right? If I bring you a cake you have no way of knowing exactly what goes into that or how long it was baked for or whatever. But if I hand you the recipe, you can. And so open source is a great starting point. And then for security stuff and privacy-related things, what we want to look for after that is an audit. And that's where um, a third party, an outside company, has come in. They've reviewed that recipe. They've looked over the source code. And they've said, yes, this this really is doing what it says it does. It's not doing something else. It's not secretly sending a copy of your data back to the mothership. Um, this is actually good privacy source code that fulfills the promises the company's made. And then, does that make sense? Anything yeah. you want to add to that as far as your knowledge? No, I was going to say, when you're looking at a service or a product, like, is there any that would work this way? You know, like... The one shooter in California, they they went to Apple and said, hey, you have to give us a way to break the coding on this guy's phone. And Apple said no, and the government was able to do it anyway and always able to do it anyway. It seemed like it was a shakedown of Apple to see if they could get him to do it. But is there such a, a thing, a product, that you know, you could, instead of rolling your own anyway, you could make, you could buy it, that if if you did go, Well, cryptocurrency works this way if you hold your own keys. But, I mean, uh, uh, some sort of email thing where, you know, if they went to a proton mail and said, hey, uh, gun to your head, give us the way to do this, and they can just look at him and say, I can't. Yeah, so that a lot of the good services, proton mail does that. Um, Wire is an encrypted messenger that I use. Signal is another encrypted messenger. Um, all of them do that. A lot of VPNs um do that and they have they publish their code and they say we don't track this we can't unlock it there's no back door we can't build one um and the if they've been audited then that means some third party has come through and said hey we looked at this we pretended we were the government trying to break in we don't see any way to break in we don't see any way for them to break in this code looks good and it does what they said but yeah absolutely there are multiple services out there doing different things that all Uh, would pass that test. Gotcha, gotcha. So are there things that everyone should do no matter what? I know there's still probably some people listening today going, you know, I I get it, but it, it just doesn't affect me. And, and, yeah, it does, and there's certain things you should be doing. Yeah, um, so kind of switching back and forth between security and privacy, the first thing that I, I wish I look forward to today, I never have to say this again, but everybody needs to be using good passwords. That means everybody needs to be using a password manager. If you are not using a password manager, a good password manager in 2020, you're wrong. Like that is a huge, huge security hole that most people have. Um, and and trying to be private and do stuff on top of crappy passwords is not going to get you anywhere. And so the way you do good passwords, get a password manager you can trust. Um, 
and then use a method called Diceware to create the password that you use for the password manager and any other things that you actually have to memorize. Um, password managers, um, you can use... Uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on them. I like uh, Bitwarden's one that I use. Uh, it's open source. LastPass is a really common one. Dashlane, uh, OnePassword. RoboForm uh, is probably Robo, Yeah, that's the one you use, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, you want to just kind of review the company. Uh, open source is good. Having a company that promises that they're about privacy is really good. That sort of thing. And then, uh, are you familiar with the Diceware method? No. So basically, um, that's a way of creating random uh, passwords, and, and it's maybe a little complicated to explain on the air, but all you do is you have a word list, and you roll dice, and you use the dice to find words, and then you string those together in a passphrase. So your word might be like, or your passphrase might be like cat, cucumber, uh, hullabaloo, five, or whatever, and it can be shorter. Um, if you just Google Diceware, uh, that will explain it, and that that's the most cryptographically sound method to create passwords and passphrases that you can remember. Because the best kind is just random letters and numbers, but those are incredibly difficult to memorize for most of us. Gotcha. Um, what are the dangers and downsides when you start to get more secure online? If everything you do has an up and a downside. Yeah, um, so I think the biggest danger here, like what I mentioned with the um, uh, why we who consider ourselves agorists or anarchists and stuff, we should be in control of our own things. If you're controlling your own keys, that means no one else, else can save you. So if you uh, go to Google and you say, hey, I've locked myself out of my email account, help me, they can unlock that and they can give it back to you. If I lock myself out of my ProtonMail account... There's not like it's designed so nobody can break into it and they don't have a backup key. So I have to make sure that I'm, you know, performing backups and writing things down and keeping things in a fireproof box and all that sort of thing to protect myself. So I'm responsible for me in that situation. Um, some other downsides, some of the services uh, that we could talk about, and I've got a few more that we can go into if you want to when we have time, but some of these take a little extra effort. They make your life a little bit slower. Uh, everything is not designed to just be super easy. It's designed to be safe. Same as if you have a deadbolt on your house. It takes longer to unlock that than if you have no locks on your house. Um, a couple kind of warnings, I would say. One is I would never recommend deleting an account on a service that you've had for a while. If you have Gmail, I recommend transferring to a company like ProtonMail that will protect your uh, data and that won't uh, skim through it and everything, but I would not delete the Gmail account because you might need that. You might change your mind someday, um, whatever. And even if you don't ever want it again, if you delete it, you've lost control of that. So that's a big uh, thing I see when people kind of start to go down this route. They tend to just want to cut the ties, and I'm all for not using their service, but I wouldn't delete it. And then speaking of that, you can definitely get down kind of a crazy rabbit hole with extreme privacy and security. Um, I've stuck my foot in that. Uh, it's probably not the best or healthiest place to be, so just watch out for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are maybe some other great tools that people can start using, like, right away? Yeah, so, um, like I mentioned, email, I think, is a 
fairly straightforward one. That's kind of a, a cornerstone of our digital identities. Everything feeds back to our email. So I really recommend people using some sort of privacy-respecting email. ProtonMail is what I and a lot of other people I know use. Um, I'd say it's probably uh, one of the more popular versions. Tutanota is another uh, uh, company that's popular in that world. Uh, Postio is another one. You can even use, there's a company called FastMail that a lot of people use that um, is a lot more like Gmail. It's a little uh, more user-friendly than some of the more secure ones. It's not fully encrypted, but it they don't scrape your data like Google or Yahoo or somebody does. Um, messengers, uh, you've kind of been hammering on that, on that lately. Uh, Wire is, I think, the best one out there for total privacy. Uh, Signal is another popular one. That one actually works with uh, text messages. Or Sorry, not text messages. It works with your phone number and can also do text messages. So you can actually put that as your main texting app on an Android phone and be able to um, just use that all the time, and it'll tell you if you're uh, encrypted or not. You know, and I think people... Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, as we're going through all this, I also think people should think about, like, what, well, what are you doing and, and does it need to be protected to a degree? Because, like, network security people don't seem to have any common sense. Like, when I worked for a company called Sage Telecom many years ago, um, I was doing editing for the website, obviously, because that was my job. And they didn't want me to use FTP from home to upload new files to the public website because somebody might intercept those files. You can see where there's like a concern there that doesn't. So let me get this straight. I'm publishing public facing data, and you're worried that somebody might intercept it in the FTP stream instead of just read it on our website. And my entire job is to get people to look at it. So I'm for you know making life difficult for bad guys, and I include our government in the bad guys group as much as possible. But I'm also for having some level of, of realistic concept. If you're publishing something in your name or your company's name publicly, we don't need to worry about trying to hide that we're doing that. I, for instance, we've had people that when we do podcasting, they're worried about the the uh, the security and privacy of. Uh, how we're doing the recording. For instance, <laughs> we're using Skype recorder on Skype. Somebody might hear it. I hope so. My plan is for about 250,000 people to hear it about an hour after I'm done. So I'm not real worried about the security of that platform. If I was using a work group where we were discussing something that was specific to us and not going public and only maybe portions of it were going to be made public, then I would care. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um Again, like all of us have smartphones, you can put as many of these on as possible, and it's just kind of a matter of mentioning it, right? Like, yeah. It's like with cryptocurrency, right? You're never going to do a transaction in crypto if you don't keep a wallet on your, you know, accessible to you somehow on your phone or whatever, and you never mention it. If you just say, hey, I'll take crypto whenever it comes up that money needs to change hands, that's going to go a long ways. And similarly, if you have two or three of these that you like, maybe try them out with your spouse or a friend, and you just say... Hey, uh, you know, I like to use wire. If anybody uses wire, if everybody mm -hmm. looks at you like you're crazy, then just text them. Yeah. And if yeah. they say, hey, that sounds cool, you know, yeah. then do it. Yeah. Like, you gotta, you gotta put it out there. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I also think that, like, for really tight groups, a lot of these things have, you know, kind of host your own. 
So a lot of these like messengers, and I'm even like I'm looking into one right now. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a, it basically does everything Zoom does, but it's self-hosted. Mm-hmm. So what that means is it sits yeah. on my my server with my security that's only seen because I don't I don't do shared hosting. I don't have a hosting provider. I have a box that sits in a data center that we manage ourselves. So if I And you're, of course, there's still ways for that to be um, compromised, but far less so than even a company that purports to protect my privacy because there is a third party now. So there's a lot of ways to do things like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that, um, it's helpful to kind of think about, you know, under what scenario would I, I have a problem with this? And so right now, you know, we live... For all the problems you and I could sit all day talking about with our government and our society and whatever you know we could sit and gripe about, we live in a pretty free and open society. Uh, we don't worry about you know the Gestapo kicking down our door. Nobody's dra- dragging people off to gulags. We're not China. If we reach a point where yeah, we're not right. China. Like China, probably. I guarantee you, Ch- native Chinese people that come and visit America and see what we do, they're like, "What? You did what?" <laughs> anyway, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, if we reach that point where we do have that sort of totalitarianism, like, we're living in a very different world than what we live in now. And, you know, you and I are probably going to be in the gulag already, and it's not going to be our problem because of things we've said, you know, years ago. And, and you know, if that ever happens, which let's pray it doesn't, but if it does, people have to figure that out then. The world we live in, there are problems, there's some soft tyranny, there's issues, but that's not one of them. So did you have any uh, additional tools? Because uh, I did kind of cut you off there. Oh, no problem. Um, I think um, just a couple other things I'd mention kind of that and things people ought to do. I really recommend using a good browser. Um, Brave is a good one. Firefox can be set up pretty well with some add-ons. Um, update things regularly. Uh, you can look at uh, Joplin is a app that I use that was kind of hard to find. It's a good replacement for Evernote if anybody uses that. Um You can use, oh, privacy.com. That's a, I should definitely touch on that. That is one of my favorite services. And I think one of the best examples of, um, this, this working for yourself versus letting the system manage you. Uh, so privacy.com, are you familiar with that? No. They, they, um, it's pay with privacy is the company name. And what they do is you link it to your bank account and then it creates a unique, uh, card number, unique debit card number for every transaction, and then, so when I go buy from something from a new merchant online, I create a debit card number, I give it to that merchant, and then that locks to that website, and they're the only merchant that can use that, and I can set how much money they're allowed to charge, I can turn it off by flipping a switch, it's super easy, it's super great, and it protects you really well. And the, the social side benefit of that is it makes uh, credit card fraud almost impossible, right? So I could read, right now I could read my credit card number for Amazon to everybody on this podcast. And somebody could go take that and they could enter it in Amazon and they could spend whatever I have set at the limit, right? A couple hundred bucks a month. And that'd be it. It would decline after that. They and, couldn't well, spend and money hold on a second. It. It, it also, they would only be able to do it with Amazon, right? Right. Because right. it's, 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 it's a card number with a limit to a specific merchant. 
So if they got that card number and didn't know that it was for Amazon, they couldn't spend anything. Yeah, absolutely. Like I would, it would be no problem for me to read a card number to some random little merchant on here, and and nobody be able to use it even with that card number. And so when you think about that, like that cuts credit card fraud to close to zero. So why is everybody not doing that? Well, it's hard. And and so the credit card companies are saying, we don't think people would want to work this hard or, or whatever. I don't know why they're doing it. Yeah. But they are eating millions and millions and millions of dollars of fraudulent transactions. Like every time you get a fraudulent transaction and they reverse it, the credit card company just eats that money yep. every year and takes that yep. as a loss. And yep. why, why aren't we doing it this way? Why doesn't every company work this way? Or well, at least know, offer the option, right? At least like make it, right. make it like so. You know, if if I have a credit card, I have an online portal. In 2020, there's no such thing as a credit card where I don't have an online portal for that card, the bank behind it or the card itself. Mm-hmm. So this could be built right into that. And even if I didn't use it, if it was there and it came from my credit card company instead of a third party, I might be more likely to use it. And you might do, I mean, if I was a credit card company, I'd be like, you know what, if you use this, we'll cut your interest payment by 1%. Because it's totally worth doing it, we're just going to jack it up a year from now anyway. So um, there'd be a lot right. of ways to get people. And there's like another technology that credit card companies use that I don't know why it's not integrated to the point where it can be used all the time so that you could just basically approve payments as they come through. So I think it's Chase has this. I've seen ads for it like this chick's at a bar. She's dancing with her friend. She left her credit card at the bar after they left. She gets on her Chase account, and she doesn't cancel the card. She just basically shuts it off. It won't work. They go back to the bar. She gets the card. She turns it back on. Now, That you could sort of use that way, except if I have, you know, automatic billing with Andy's Hosting Corporation, well, it's going to fail. You're going to shut my server off, and I'm going to be pissed. So I can't use it that way. But I don't see why it couldn't be done with a protocol that worked with the merchant accounts, you know, through APIs and all, where basically, so my charge goes through from Andy's Server Corporation. And there's some latency there of like a 24-hour period before the charge actually goes through. the, The system basically says, yes, it's here, and it's good. Maybe. And then right. I get a, an alert, and when I say, yes, I did make this charge. If I don't do that, the charge doesn't go through. There's a way that something like that could be done as well. But your solution is actually far yep. more seamless. It's far more seamless, yeah, because... Yeah, and if if you think about if those were integrated, right, then my server company would not be charging the same number as my physical credit card. They would have a unique number Yeah, only they charged, and I would only pause that if I wanted to pause paying them. And if anything um, and was compromised... I have done that. And if anything was compromised, you know the source of the leak. It's like a lot of people that yep. create an email for every account, right? They, they create a forwarding email, so if anything starts coming to that email, you know who leaked your email, or whose database got hacked, which is, is, is often more frequently the thing. Uh, that happens. Yep. Cool. And that's that's something I really recommend people doing as well, is having unique emails for things. There's a service called Blur uh, by Abine, A-B-I-N-E dot com, that um, will let you do that, and you just create a unique email um, that forwards to your real email. Um, There's another one called uh, 33Mail that does that. And I'm actually, I uh, set up with uh, Nicole Awesome Sauce. I'm going to do a webinar through um, her Living Free in Tennessee members portal next week. 
and kind of show people how to integrate some of these um, secure email techniques and the secure payment and two-factor authentication and password managers. It's kind of, I think, overwhelming for people. And so um, I was talking with Nicole, and we're going to do that next week, and you'll be able to actually see it on the screen, and I'll, I'll set up dummy accounts of everything I use and kind of walk through so people can see. Yeah, it adds a minute or two to me setting up a new account or buying something, but it's uh, at the end of the day, it's probably... 10 or 20 times more secure than what uh, is kind of average. So you can check that out on livingfreeintennessee.com. I'll add one to that, too, with the emails. If it's an email that you're never going to use again, uh, and you're more of a – this is more a spam prevention uh, thing, but there are a lot of times, like, to, to see this, enter your email, click an acknowledgement link, and it's like, a, it's like an email paywall. You're paying with your, your data. Setting up a full right. email account for something like that – I don't. I'm gonna click one link, and I don't ever want to use this email again. There's a service, and there's some other ones because some of the uh, providers, like mine, Aweber, is onto this, and they don't approve it anymore. Called Mailinator, and you don't even set it up. You just like it says, you know, enter your email for access to our report. Okay, uh, diddle shit at Mailinator.com, and you just go <laughs> to Mailinator.com and type in diddle shit, and you see every email that came to that particular email that you just made up out of your head and I think they stay there for two hours and they go away so obviously you wouldn't want to use this for anything um, private at all but if you needed access to something and you knew that that place that you gave that data was going to then market you know widgets to you for the rest of your life or maybe sell your data to somebody else which is more likely um, then you can use a service like that yep absolutely so do you have like a – you mentioned the, the webinar coming up with Nicole. I'll, I'll reach out to her and make sure that my folks know about when that is. Um, but do you have like a website or whatever where you uh, you put out information like this? Yeah, so I started one a couple years ago and kind of let it fall by the wayside. Uh, it's peopleforprivacy.com. People, the word for, spelled out, privacy.com. Um, I'm going to try to kind of be active there and see. I don't know. I feel like I'm sort of throwing this out into the void in my personal life, people aren't super interested in this often. <laughs> so, you know, if this if this audience, there's a group of people that are kind of interested in this, and I can serve the audience by kind of writing about it and um, answering questions, stuff like that. Like, I would I would love to do that and have that connection. Um, I wasn't getting a lot of traction with what I was writing and didn't feel like it was something that uh, was serving anybody at the time and got busy with having babies and moving and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so that website is somewhat active. I posted a few things to it this past few weeks. Um, if people want to go over there and subscribe or contact me through there, they can definitely do that. Um, I'm on MeWe, uh, in the, in the TSP group and the Living Free in Tennessee group. Um, and would be happy to reach out to people there as well. You know, I'll, I want to say one more thing because we didn't really talk about that. To me, one of the greatest things you can do for your privacy and your security is stop using Facebook. Really. I mean, and yeah, I know absolutely. that I've recently said screw Facebook and I've left, and it might be self-serving to say use services like MeWe because that's where I am now and all. But I mean it. Um, you're talking about a company that doesn't just sell your data and share your data with corporations and government. They say they do it. So people are always like me, well, how do you know that MeWe's not, you know, well, first of all, there's not a million ads there. Right, so I would think that if they're if they're using that data to sell advertising, I might actually see it. Um, I certainly don't make a post on 
MeWe, and then three seconds later see advertisements for the item I talked about on seven other websites. But whether they do it or not, I can't be sure of. But I can be sure that Facebook does because they promise to do so. Right. Right. So like, I trust whether I don't whether I trust a provider or not. I trust the provider more that says they don't than the one that openly says they do. And and I think that if you haven't, I don't know if you've seen this or not yet. You probably have. Um, but everybody needs to watch the social dilemma. And and that is presented by people that actually are fairly still friendly to these platforms. Many of them built the platforms, but they tell you all the problem. It comes from a very leftist ideology point, but yet it's still so bad. So you can imagine when it comes from that source and it's that bad, how bad it really is. And and right. when I watched that, it was about. Three or four weeks after I had my mental shutdown on Facebook and said I'm done with this shit, I'm not coming back. Um, and I, I, I never felt so good about it as I did after that that documentary was over. I'm like, holy crap! Because the it was one thing about the data harvesting I've been talking about today, but the level of manipulation there is extreme. So I encourage everybody to watch that, and I'll make sure I have note uh, links in the show notes today uh, for your website as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other thing, I always forget to say this because it seems so elementary to me, but so many services now allow you to log in using Facebook or Google credentials. Uh. Don't do that. <laughs> just just don't. Like, make up a unique password and a unique username for that service. Use password manager so you can manage that. Like, that is just pouring so much more of your information into Because especially when Facebook you use Facebook, you're, you're, you're giving that company access to all your data on Facebook and many times all of the data of all of your friends on Facebook, including like really important shit like your birthday. It's probably right. better that your birthday on any account where it is displayed not be your actual birthday. That's a little one we didn't say. And, and that That's, could be I as certainly m- agree. much as change the year by a couple years or something. Like, you know, that's a critical piece of information when people are setting up like credit applications and things like that. So, yeah, don't don't be public with your actual date of birth, uh, especially in things like Facebook, because that's so easy. You can build a bot that can harvest twenty thousand proper names and birthdays in about three seconds. I'm sure that has been done, and there are databases of that that you can buy. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you can that. buy the, the 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 scraper for like seven bucks, and not even on the dark web, on like some you know random software website or something. I guarantee it. There are no there are so there are here's an example of just how commoditized screwing people over has become and this is kind of screwing the gullible, but it is done. There are websites that are like, hey, if you deposit, you know, point one Bitcoin here, we'll pay you one percent interest every five days on it or something. And they're total scams. They're, they're basically digitized Ponzi schemes. And they run, and they even mm-hmm. say, hey, look, you just got a deposit today. Put more in, you'll get more. And they run like that. You don't have to be some kind of programmer to design that. So you can go buy the software for that website. And the person you buy it from will install it for you, like a WordPress site. So if that level of blatant open theft exists... 
Just think about what sophisticated corporations that hide it are doing. And, and that should drive that, like kind of everything we said home here at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that ties back to what we were saying, or what we talked about earlier with, um, like, why should somebody who considers themselves an anarchist care about this? Um, and to me, it's because we are at a place right now that we can't stay at forever, right? That That system exists because our society doesn't have a way to manage trust in that environment. And the the default way to manage trust in our society is through the government, right? If you want to know I am who I say I am, what do you ask for? Government ID, right? Yeah. And I either the government has to get way better at providing those services and helping us all, which I don't have a lot of trust that's going to happen or be good for me if it does, or individuals have to start providing those services and we have to be building and creating and patronizing and working with services that provide identity. And that's that's a cool thing about uh, cryptocurrency is I think it's kind of the leading edge on that. But I want to see that in, in email and physical mail and um, online marketing and just everywhere else spread out that way. Well, very cool. Again, Andy, thanks for being with us today and I'll make sure I have a link to your website. And it's been a great conversation on a really important subject, so thanks for that. Thanks for having me, Jack. Uh, great interview, uh, really good dude, and I will have uh, quite a few of the uh, tools that he recommended, uh, along with a link to the webinar that he's going to be doing with Nicole Sauce and his personal website, all in the show notes today under a sub uh, section that will say Andy's links. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you one of the ways you can help support this show and the work that we do. Let's do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is one I talked about in my show on Monday about fishing. It's the Lindy Rigger Kit. And this is one of those ones that I, I know there's a ton of you guys in the audience that fish. I know there's a ton of you that use snell hooks and, and leader rigs and things like that. And I know that if you knew how this thing worked, you'd get a couple of them right away. So I didn't just do a write-up on it today. I did a video, about an eight-minute video, showing exactly how they work, what they do, some little hacks you can use with them. But basically what these things do is you take like a snell hook, and it wraps up around it, and it stores it, and then the thing itself goes inside a standard tackle, uh, like a tackle box insert. And one small tackle box insert can hold 72 of these things. Uh, I'm sorry, 36 of these things, up to 72 if you do one little hack I talked about, uh, perfectly with no tangles, no problems, no nothing. And one of the things I didn't put in my video, I did put in the write-up, though, is for those of you that fish for catfish and use punch bait, you have to use treble hooks. It just doesn't work any other way. Punch bait, for those of you who need to take a stick, you shove your treble hook down in the bait, and you pull it out on like a 45-degree angle. It works really good, but you've got to have a treble hook for it. Danny King's is my favorite punch bait, by the way. Um, snelled hooks turn into a mess in a tackle box or a bag period. No matter what you do, and even if you don't turn them into a mess, they're a pain in the butt to take out. The little plastic holders don't work worth a shit, uh, especially if you tie your own and they're not a standard length, which is most of mine, that's how I do it. Um, the pool noodle hack works okay, but it's not great. And if you have a pool noodle and you have treble hooks, then you got extra hooks sticking. You see what I'm saying? It's just not good. With this guy, if you use that treble hook, you make a snell and you attach it to it and you put that in your box, it doesn't get in the way, it doesn't get caught up on anything, it doesn't cause any trouble. 
take a look at this thing. If you're a fisherman and you use snell hooks, pre-rig leaders, etc., you want these. I don't know of anything else like it on the market. If you're a fisherman and you don't use snells, mainly because of, well, for all the good, there's the bad, take a look at this. You might start trying them because they do speed things up. The way I look at it, when I'm fishing, the more time my bait is in the water, okay, the more fish I'm going to catch. The more time my line is out of the water dicking around with tying hooks on and stuff like that, the less fish I'm going I'm to catch. And when you have kids with you or have a mosquito eating your nose hole or something, it just makes your whole life better. Check it out today, the Lindy Rigger Kit. You'll find all of it at tspaz.com or the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. And, um, you know, if you were on our Telegram channel, you'd have already gotten this today. And if you're on our email channel, well, you'll get it uh, right away. So check out the site. Click on Get Social. Click on Daily Mail. Get on some level of alert system so that when I talk about something on the air and you get it on your podcast app or something, you're like, man, I want to do that, and then you forget about it. That won't happen. That won't happen. Uh, again, the Telegram channel has become really a favorite of many of our members because it's just me talking to you. Again, you can find out more about that at Get Social on the Survival Podcast website. With that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up with our song of the day. Song of the day today, I was trying to think of what to play for you. And the song that just came coming back, and I think I played this recently, but I'm going to play it again anyway today, is Lives in the Balance by Jackson Brown. There's two reasons I want to play this for you today. One... With our subject at hand today, this song has nothing to do with digital security and privacy and the government spying on you. But as I said, you can't trust them. This song is about how our government, for its own means and its own ends, has cooperated with private industry selling guns to disrupt lives and cause problems and conflicts in little countries around the world that we don't even know where they're at. And that people have, you know, we, we, there's, there's blood on our hands from it. And I don't know if Some of y'all will believe that, some of y'all won't, but it's true. And, 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 and just a look at the last hundred years of history of what the United States has done in Central America alone will show that to be the case. Well, how does that relate to cybersecurity, protecting yourself? Not Okay, the same industry and government that did that shit there is the one you're trusting if you don't take extra measures to protect what you're doing online and, and digitally. So do you think you can trust people that would do that? The other thing is, and this is where I think I played this recently, this is being done right now in our own country. We've gone into these nations, we've destabilized them, and then that way we can provide the quote-unquote solution. If you look at the way groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa, et cetera, are being used right now, and that's what's going on. They're being used by the, the, the hidden hand that's not so hidden. They're destabilizing major cities and regions throughout the United States so that they can provide the solution. And I want you to I want you to begin to recognize that. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year. With the blood in the ink of the headlines And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war And there's a shadow on the faces Of the men who sent the guns 
But they're never the 